Do you find yourself in a second marriage? Because of death or divorce, millions do. And often you feel pressure from stepchildren or from friends. Even at church you can feel like you have not lived up to God's ideal. Take heart. In a sense, the Lord wants all of us to be in a second marriage. Let's check out Romans 7 with our study leader, Dave Wurtzen, where Paul talks to us about a second marriage that lives. In 1985, really it was 1984, my mom came down and had Christmas with us. A lot of you won't remember that. It was one of the coldest years we ever had. Global warming wasn't taking place, but global freezing was taking place. All the pipes in North Dallas froze, and my dad and mom, who live in upstate New York, which is like the other side of Alaska, were up there, and uh, they came down to visit us to escape the cold, and it was colder here than it was up there in upstate New York. They went and visited my brother Don up in Grand Rapids, and then they went over to Strewn Lake, back to where their home was. They had a great time. How many of you like to party on New Year's Eve and, and even continue it into New Year's Day? Well, mom and dad were doing that. In fact, they were getting ready to leave one party and then go to the last party. My dad opened the door like a good gentleman, and boy, he was glad he did it because that was the last time he opened the door for my mom. He opened the door. My mom got in. My dad went around the car, opened the door, stepped in to drive, and my mom slumped over on his shoulder and went home to be with Jesus. And so that was a very traumatic time. Uh, My boys, I remember, going up there to have the funeral. They actually had a blast. Uh, Word of Life uh, let them use a snowmobile for about a week. And so they always associated losing grandma with snowmobiles. And and it was a great uh, anecdote or kind of a cure for them. The loss of mom obviously was a bittersweet thing. It's always hard to say goodbye to your mom But my mom wasn't supposed to live to be about 15. She was a very weak person physically because her mom burned to death when she was two. And then she was raised by this drunken aunt and uncle with her, I think she had seven or eight brothers and sisters. The older ones had a scrounge for food. And so all of my life, it was kind of a grace that my mom was with us that long. And my mom was the one that brought a lot of, of saneness to our family. My dad was the idealistic evangelist, always out in the road. My mom was the one that actually let us watch Howdy Doody and Roy Rogers. My mom was a great balancing age in her life. And that's why it was hard when suddenly after my dad, you know, at first he was calling us all the time, really dependent upon us. About six months into the first year of my mom's home going, I suddenly started getting calls from different friends around the country. My dad was showing up in different states And uh, different friends of his were trying to get him hooked up with another life partner. Some of you are going to go through the experience to learn from this morning. That's tough to take. And uh, my mom, uh, you know, had only been gone for six months. And I'd suddenly, you know, have my dad. He even called me once in a while and said, you know, and he he would send me these pictures. He said, what do you think? You know, and and that's really, really weird. (laughs) I thought my dad was going on a very holy trip to Bermuda. Uh, it had to be holy. He was going with the Association of Baptists for World Evangelism. Now, what could be more holy than to go on an A Association of Baptists for World Evangelism? I thought my dad was going, you know, to further the Great Commission. 
Uh, on that trip to Bermuda, there was a, 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 a widow that had just been widowed. Her husband died of cancer from Lawrence, Kansas. And my dad, she caught my dad's eyes. She was with a girlfriend. And instead of my dad preaching to accomplish the Great Commission, he devoted himself to being really careful that she didn't discover that he was actually older than her own father before he had won her heart. Then I get the news. I didn't really get the news. I got a call from my dad and said, your sister Betsy is furious with me. And I said, well, why is that? He said, well, because I disappeared to Kansas, to Lawrence, Kansas, and I didn't tell her where I was going. Well, my older sister lives up there in Spring Lake. At that time, she actually lived with my dad. It's awfully hard when your daughter lives with you to actually sneak across the country. And so my sister thought my dad was dying of terminal cancer and had gone to some Mayo Clinic somewhere. Actually, my dad went to Lawrence, Kansas to propose to Joan Steiner. And my dad was too chicken. My dad was a very powerful, brave evangelist with 50,000 people or 100,000 people in in, uh, Yankee Stadium. But to go one-on-one like with his own daughter and say, I know you're going to hate my guts, but I'm going to go out and propose this new marriage. Uh, My dad never did that. And so he called me for damage control. (laughs) And my dad, you know, and, and this was not... I never had a class at seminary, how to counsel with your sisters when your dad wants to enter into a second marriage. But my dad was loaded for bear. He said, Dave, Romans 7, where you need to go with them, Romans 7 talks about it's very valid to have another marriage. And you're, you're my son, but I want you to know that you're the theologian in the family you have your doctorate degree in theology, and you're also the pastor in the family, so you need to not be my son right now. You need to exercise your spiritual authority. And that means you need to call your sister Marianne, who at that time had joined Betsy in wanting to kill my dad. I said to my dad, Dad, it would have helped if you would have, I've learned if you want to make drastic changes in life, it's hard to get the people that need to go along the change with you to do that, but it's easier if you tell them ahead of time. So I said, Dad, maybe the next time around, I hope there's not a next time around, but, but at least have the guts to tell my sisters that you're actually thinking of a second marriage before you tell them that you're engaged to be married. The second thing I said is it helps not to lie. Because my dad actually didn't have the courage. And that that shows you that here's this great evangelist, but he's like all of us. He had feet of clay. But he was right. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 7. My dad actually was biblically right. It was all right, even though it was hard on me as a son. It was hard uh, because I'm still grieving for for my mom. I do want you to know that you, if your wife or your husband dies then according to the Old Testament law and also according to the illustration that Paul uses in the book of Romans, it's okay to remarry. Now, some of you want to illustrate some things really important in this passage because some of you have learned Romans 7 and you want to use it like my dad did. And what I want you to realize, it's very important when you read the Scripture. People use Scripture in ways that make me cringe because they don't use it within the flow of the truth that Paul's trying to get across, or that John or Jesus is trying to get across. Romans chapter 7 is not in the Holy Word of God so that Jack Wurtzen can marry Joan Steiner after my Marge Wurtzen dies, okay? 
it's given as an illustration. And what I want to talk to you this morning is I, I want every one of you to enter into a second marriage. You can try that on with your unbelieving friends. I learned on Sunday at church that, that I need to enter into a second marriage. Well, fasten your seatbelts. The Lord wants every one of you. Some of you are in a second marriage, and uh, you know, you're wondering whether God's ever going to bless that, whether he can do anything with it. Well, I, he can. But I want you to realize that the Lord wants every one of you to be in a second marriage. But the Lord isn't teaching me in Romans 7 that I need to pray that Mary will die so I can enter into a second marriage. You got me? That would be an illegitimate use of this text. Amen? Say amen. You better or Mary will kill you. Turn to Romans 8. Mary says amen. Okay. So let's look at Romans 7 and let's see if we can figure out what the Apostle Paul is talking about. About this need to have a second marriage that lives. Look what he says in chapter 7 verse 1. Do you not know, brothers and sisters? Remember, whenever you read brothers in Greek, it includes all of you ladies as well, and it's communicating our family relationship in Christ. For I am speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over a man as long as he lives. For example, by law, a married woman is bound, and by the way, just a little side here, notice how man is used of woman because he just shifted, and now we're going to talk about a woman who is married and then has a right to remarry after her husband dies. So that includes all you ladies. I just want you to see that shift so no one's left out, okay? Your heavenly daddy wants to talk to all of us. It says, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he's alive. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. So then, if she marries, now Paul's going to illustrate his point. The basic principle he's laid out is that the law of marriage is till death do us part. It's the general law of marriage. Paul is saying that if you enter into the covenant of marriage, that as long as your partner lives, then the law of marriage applies to you. But if your partner dies, then something happens. And he's going to illustrate it. He says then you're out from underneath the law of marriage. So he's going to illustrate that. So then if a wife that's married to her husband marries another man, while her husband is still alive, she's called an adulteress. The idea here is not getting into all kinds of discussion about divorce. That's not what this practice is about, because just to illustrate that to you, Deuteronomy chapter 24 in the Old Testament law does allow a bill of divorce, and husbands and wives could leave and give a legitimate bill of divorce and enter into second marriages. And God did that because of the hardness of hearts, and that's not my message this morning, but I want you to see is don't use God's word and run with it in ways that it's not the thrust of the passage. The point of this passage is not so much to teach us about divorce and remarriage. Paul is using an illustration. The general principle is when you make your marriage vows that that marriage covenant is binding as long as your partner lives. And in that general scheme of things, if you go out and you marry someone else while your partner's alive, then you're committing adultery. And in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, it would say that. So he says if you marry another person, while if she married another man while her husband's living, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law, and she's not called an adulteress. She's not an adulteress, even though she married another man. Now, what's the Apostle Paul talking about? Let's see if we can figure it out. So my brothers, so my sisters, you also died, you also died to the law. So the focus of this passage is the law. What's the point of God's law? You died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another. 
to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit to God. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law, they were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit. The results that it produced in our life was death. But now by dying to what once bound us, that old marriage that symbolized that the old marriage is the symbol of the law, living under the law, so that now we've been released to serve in the new way. It's the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? That's the question that's raised. Was God's law a bad thing? Was it an evil thing? Certainly not. Indeed, I would have not known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting was, really, unless the law had said, don't covet. But sin, as soon as I got the command, don't covet, it seized an opportunity, sin in me, afforded by the commandment, and it produced in me all kinds of coveting, all kinds of covetous desire. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life, and I died. I found that the very commandment, the very commandment that was supposed, that was intended to bring me life, actually brought me death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, utterly sinful, It produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. What's the Apostle Paul talking about? Let's first of all talk about the newness of the Spirit versus the oldness of the law, and let's focus it on this illustration of the first marriage. Just so you have an idea, Judaism was very powerful in the first century. To go back in the first century, when Paul wrote this letter and the Roman believers are reading it, All throughout the Roman Empire, there were pagan Romans and Greeks, Gentiles, who were passionate for, they felt things are amiss. All this immorality, all this slavery, all this drunkenness, all this taking drugs, it's pulling the whole human race down. Anybody identify with that? And they were attracted to Judaism because Judaism locked them into a code of ethics. In these immoral relationships, it told them stories about Adam and Eve, the first man and woman that entered into a marriage. It it gave them a temple in Jerusalem, and you could go to the temple in Jerusalem, and you could hear the teaching of the Levitical priests, and they would give you this marvelous law from the book of Exodus, this marvelous law from the book of Deuteronomy. There were priests there. You could watch incredible processions where the priests and all the priests that served with them would wear immaculate clothing and they would use incense and they would have gone through ritual cleansing baths and they would go into the temple singing the Psalms. And even Gentiles, even though they couldn't get into the court of the Jews, they could be in the court of the Gentiles. And then once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and would offer for a sacrifice, bring the blood of a sacrifice into that Holy of Holies. Brothers and sisters, I want you to feel the power of that old covenant. It was an old covenant that was given by God. And the Apostle Paul lived much of his life underneath that old covenant. 
That's what he's writing about in the book of Romans. He's saying the law was a good, holy, righteous thing that was given by God. That is viewed in Paul's illustration as the old marriage. That's what he's talking about. He says, you, my brothers, don't you know that I'm speaking with men, that the law has authority over men as long as he lives? His point is that in the Old Testament, that the children of Israel were underneath the law. They were supposed to be a light. Gentiles would come to them, and they would learn about God. They would come and worship in the temple, and they would be able to not be able to enter into the Holy of Holies, but they could at least see a physical locus on the earth where God would be present. In every one of your hearts, you want to get close to God. How many of you have ever felt a pull in your heart, you want to get close to God? Anybody ever feel that? How many of you want to know God's presence? How many of you feel like you need a little instruction that you mess up pretty badly and it really helps someone to tell you, don't steal? Isn't there a part of you that says that's a pretty good deal, okay? I want to share something else that you like. You like smells. You like uniforms. You also especially like authority figures. And we distinguish those authority figures by the clothes that they wear and the ceremonies they conduct. And every one of you in this room will be pulled by that. And what the Apostle Paul wants you to know is that the old Jewish covenant had all of those things. But he makes an incredible statement. He's teaching you in the book of Romans that you need to die to that old covenant. Now, if you were from a Jewish background, that would kill you. Because the law, the Lord said in the Old Testament, he who does these things will live. That's true. What did God tell Adam and Eve? God told Adam, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if you eat of it, you will surely die. So if you obey God, what's going to happen? You'll live. You got it? What I want you to know is that it's absolutely true. God's moral commands, whether it's in the Old Testament or repeating the New Testament, God's moral commands, those Ten Commandments, those Ten Commandments will produce life in your life if you obey them. And that's what the point of the Old Testament was about. It was to give, this is the way to live. This is the presence of God in the Holy of Holies. And you need to go through all these cleansing things. You obey those laws and you're going to live. But what the Apostle Paul has been teaching us, Romans 6.23 says, but the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that leads into this discussion. In chapter 6, verse 14, he said this, for sin shall not be your master because you are not under the law but under grace. Everybody look at that verse. Because I believe that there's many of you that are still under the law. You're trying to perform for God. You're trying to please God. You feel like good boys and girls when you attend church. If you miss for three weeks, you feel very guilty. Even if you were on a mission trip. Just kidding you a little bit. It's easy for me as a pastor teacher to want to motivate you by guilt. Don't you know you're supposed to give 10% and you need to give it before taxes? 
We're behind. We're behind in budget, minus $60,000. We need to make it up by the fall. You wimps, don't you want to obey the Lord? You need to begin right here by obeying the Lord. And you all laugh, but there's parts of you, every one of you. You love that. And you'll let somebody totally control your life by that. Is it good to tithe? Yeah. Is it good not to cover your neighbor's wife or your neighbor's husband? Yeah, it's really good. But you're not under the law. You're under grace. Now, what's the Apostle Paul talking about? He uses this illustration of marriage. And he's saying that as long as you're living, then you're underneath that first marriage. But when my mom died, my dad was released from that marriage vow. Though my sisters hated it, there was nothing morally, ethically, spiritually wrong in my dad entering into a second marriage. Because the law of marriage is that when the partner dies, you're free to marry. Now, this is what Paul is saying. The apostle Paul is saying that every one of you need to die. You hear me? The Lord wants Dave and he wants every single one of you to die. Because that's what he's been teaching. Remember in Romans 6, it says, don't you know that all of you have been baptized into Christ, have been baptized into his death? You see, we just sang surrender all, all to Jesus. I surrender, I surrender all. Jesus doesn't want you to surrender all. He wants you to die. (laughs) He doesn't want you to say, oh, here, Jesus, here's everything. He wants you just to join him on a cross. That's a hard thing. You see, Dave Wurtson wants to do what Dave Wurtson wants to do. And Jesus is calling me to say, Dave, I want you to die what Dave Wurtson wants. I want you just to want what I want and what God wants. And I want you to join me on the cross. That's what he's going to do. In Romans 12, he says, I, I beseech you therefore, my brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, that you present your body as a living, not surrendering all, but as a living sacrifice, joining Jesus on the cross. That's a hard deal. And his point is this. He says, when we're joined with Christ, we die to the law. What does that mean? It means that I realize I can never, never obey God based upon the law so that I can never, never claim, come before God and say, God, look how obedient I've been. Look at how obedient I've been. That's Paul's point. What he's saying is, Paul, and I want you to feel the radicalness of this. The Apostle Paul is saying to a group of even Roman Gentile believers that have been probably joined the synagogue, they're beginning to be attracted to Judaism, and he's saying Judaism isn't going to work for you. And you live in a culture that tells you all religions the same. Well, first century Judaism taught you this. And Paul had it. First Century Judaism taught you, if you join the Jewish people, if you're a man, if you get circumcised, if you're a woman, if you get baptized and proselyte baptism, if you'll keep the Sabbath religiously, if you'll learn the Torah, if you'll eat only kosher food, if you'll try to make the three major pilgrimages, especially you men, you make the three major pilgrimages to Jerusalem, If you give your tithes and offerings in honoring to the Lord, then you will be right with God. The Pharisees taught that, and the Pharisees chose to live that 
right out among the people, and the people loved him for that. And the Apostle Paul was one of those Pharisees. They were theologically correct. They believed that the Old Testament taught the resurrection from the body. But they taught that the way that you stand right before God and then the way that you grow in godliness is by obeying the Torah. And that's deep inside of every one of you. Like I was in Israel several years ago eating in one of the hotels and there was a bunch of American students that were studying uh, at Hebrew University. They're also studying at an evangelical college. After the supper, they said, Dave, hey, we really need to talk to you. We've decided we're going we're gonna to start keeping the kosher food laws of the Old Testament. And while we've been in Israel, like we found that we really love the fact that at 6 o'clock on Friday, things have to stop. So we're going to start keeping the Sabbath law. And they went on and on. They had a whole bunch of things like that. Isn't that a good thing? Man, American students, they were religious. Now they're, you know, they weren't even religious at all before they got there, kind of. Now they're going to get really serious about their faith. There's tremendous power in that. By the way, there's nothing wrong with it. The Lord, by God's grace, you should take a break once a week. Nothing wrong with you disciples. You guys do it with your food. Almost all of Christendom goes through cycles with the food. We go cycles with our clothes. We go through cycles with everything. It's all this power of the law. The power of the Lord. What I want to share with you is that the Apostle Paul had a marvelous, God-given system of law that he was raised in. And he said, I did it really good. But he's saying, I had to come to the place that I realized that I was not under the law, that I died with Christ and I rose again with Christ to live under his grace. Now, why do you need to live under grace? Remember that second part of the passage that's very important. His point in verses 1 through 6 is to show you is that what the law generates in us is disobedience and death. The law is God's MRI to show you that we're sinful, that we're rebellious, that we disobey God, but it can't give us new life. No matter how many 12 steps or six steps, like we, Joel and Courtney and Mary and I just came from a conference where they gave us seven steps to being great. As America, everyone applauds. We all love three steps of this. Five, how many of you ever heard messages? You go to big sales conventions, you know, five steps of this, 10 steps of this. How many of you ever heard that? Anybody that's ever heard that, raise your hand. How many of you get up in the morning and you have a real powerful, positive thinking guy that says you can do anything you want today? Just believe. How many of you believe that? Well, I want to share with you, if you've got an outgoing personality and you're gifted by the sovereign grace of God to be a good salesman, it'll work really well. I happen to be one of those people. If you're gifted by God to be an introvert and you're not really good with your tongue, then you're going to flub. And you're going to believe all you want to, and it's not going to do it, but you're going to spend your life going to conventions saying, here's a behavior pattern, here's a system that will set you free. The Apostle Paul uses a marvelous illustration. He says, I used to be alive. Remember that strange passage I read here? It says, I used to be alive apart from the law. And what he meant by that is, is before God came to me and said, thou shalt not covet, I used to be alive. What he meant by that is I thought things were going well. It doesn't mean that he was really alive spiritually, but he says, I thought things were going really well. How many can remember a time when you thought, hey, I'm doing really, really good? It's, it's like some of my students that I teach in theology. They go through a semester and they say, hey, I'm really, really doing great. And then we have the final exam. 
and they all get 30s. And then they come and ask me if I'm going to grade on the curve. What happened there? Suddenly the law, they thought they were doing really, really good. But then we applied the standard. We applied the measuring rod. And this is the measuring rod, my brothers and sisters, this morning. The measuring rod, Paul says, is thou shalt not covet. Now, this is what Judaism did. Judaism said, God's law, loving him with all my heart, it's an external thing. It doesn't mean that I think about him, that I'm devoted to him, that I'm passionate for him. What it means is that I wear the right clothes and I go to the tabernacle. I go to the temple at least three times a year. And that'll fulfill that command. When it says to love your neighbor myself, I can have all kinds of debates about who is my neighbor. It doesn't have to do with my heart. When I read don't steal, it just means that I never use my hands to steal. I never use my feet to go into someone's house. I'm not a robber, so I'm, I fulfill my command. When it says don't commit adultery, it just means that I've never been in bed with someone that doesn't belong to me. That's all that it means. The Judaism of the first century, which all religion does, every religion does that, Islam Mormonism does it, Roman Catholicism does it, even Protestantism does it. As soon as you're talking about religion, we externalize all the commands. And as long as we feel, as long as we don't do it with our hands, with our feet externally, then it's not real. We can do whatever we want to in the inside. I want to share something with you. Thou shalt not covet changes the ballgame. I just came out of a conference. There were 7,000 ladies there. They were decked out. It's a premier design conference, so they're decked out in gallons of jewelry. Not a good term, but jewelry everywhere. And I've been married to Mary 37 years, and I'm totally devoted to her. But there's a part of me that just gets on the elevator with a woman that's a perfect 10 and a desire arises in me. That's what Jimmy Carter said. I've lusted after women in my heart, and the country just about killed them for it. Remember that? I'll share something else with you. Like it says, thou shalt not covet my neighbor's wife. When you give me that command, in New York City when I was a little kid, when I was an adolescent, I used to go to New York City a lot, there was some movie that says, don't covet your neighbor's wife. That was the title. I think the title was Adultery. Don't cover your neighbor's wife. And I remember, wow, there's a part of me that, man, that billboard just riveted me. Why is that? It rivets you. It rivets you. In fact, it becomes more exciting. Some of you have had affairs knowing through the whole thing, I shouldn't do this. But it became more exciting because it was illicit. Where does that come from? Like, why is it that as soon as you tell me not to do something, Joel and Courtney and Mary and I were at a meeting the last couple of days where somebody like an old school teacher got up and just let us have it. And I love the person dearly. But how many of you ever had a school teacher tell you this and this and this? You know what I, how many of you know what I mean by an old school teacher? How many of you as students have ever said, I, I wouldn't want to use my erasers like that in a million years, but man, I'm going to go out. The first time my teacher walked out of the room, I'm going to use my eraser like that. Anybody like that? That's what Paul's talking about. Where does that come from? Why is it that when I tell you, don't go 60 miles an hour, you got to go 55. How many of you go 60 like me all the time? That's because we've got a stinky, dirty, rebellious nature. And I, gotta, I want you to understand this. 
Judaism can't conquer it. Please listen to me. Roman Catholicism. Pope Benedict used to be Cardinal Ratzinger. I've been reading Cardinal Ratzinger since I was a little theological student. He's much more brilliant than me. His writings are immaculate. He speaks multiple languages. But just because he became Pope Benedict doesn't mean that he can get me right with God. And a lot of you are from that background, and I'm not demeaning your background. I just want to focus you on Jesus because I want you to know that you can stand like Dale Knott flies to Rome every week and can stand in St. Peter's Square, and Pope Benedict can wave at you. He can throw water at you. He can kiss you, and you'll be enthralled by that. In fact, you might not smoke, drink, or chew, or swear for the next 35 years. It could transform your life, but it's not going to make you stand one second right before the Almighty God of the universe. Because the Apostle Paul is saying you've got to die to that old religion that you earn your way or you have some human being that does it for you. Because Benedict, Pope Benedict, can't stop me from coveting. I need to die. But brothers and sisters, I want you to know that I've met an incredible Savior. Where was the presence of God? Like when you were in Jerusalem in the first century, in 30 AD, when you, as a Gentile, couldn't get in to the Holy of Holies, you had to stay in the outer court of the temple, and you're really convicted because you just started joining the synagogue and you learned that you shouldn't covet and you're just totally guilty because you covet, you covet, you covet, you covet. And you go to the temple in Jerusalem and you say, man, I, I, I want to get close. And these commands from God are so marvelous. And I, I, I love the sacrifices, but it just never satisfies my conscience. So you talk to the Holy of Holies priest that goes into the Day of Atonement. At that time, it would have been Caiaphas. Once a year, Caiaphas got to go into the Day of Atonement. But you know what? In the first century, when Jesus was on earth, when you went to the Holy of Holies, did you get any closer to the presence of God? Did you ever stop to think about that? In the first century, when the priest went to the Holy of Holies, the Shekinah glory of God, the visible presence of God, wasn't there. Did you ever ask where it was? Where did you meet God in the first century? God wasn't locked up in the temple in Jerusalem. He was born in Bethlehem. He was raised in a lowly carpenter's family. He was a humble Galilean carpenter's son. And there were Jewish people and Gentiles that were at the temple And Jesus stood up and said, I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. Brothers and sisters, that's what Paul wants you to know. And Jesus, it's Jesus, not smells, not whistles. I wear one of those black gowns as a professor at a graduation time. And that's tradition, tradition, tradition. But you know what? When I put that black gown, it doesn't change anything. I'm just Dave. 
So yesterday at the middle of a conference at lunchtime, I'm talking after lunch really loud because I'm a New Yorker. And I'm also getting hard of hearing, so I talk really loud. It's one of my greatest assets. How many of you have had trouble understanding me this morning? Anybody here had trouble hearing me this morning? Well, those lungs. Janae has them. My dad had them. And I got them. My brother had them too. My sister Betsy has them. That's one of my greatest assets. But, you know, in a personal conversation, when you're talking so loud that the person's going like this, So Mary says to me, honey, you need to talk a little bit quieter. Don't you do that! You just cut me down. Was that right? Where does that come from? Because I'm arrogant. And I got all kinds of reasons. I've got a doctorate degree in persuasion. So I can tell Mary, Mary, I'm culturally in New York. You're culturally in Nebraska. You're cutting down my identity. Let me talk as loud as I want. And I can go through the rest of my life making people angry because I talk too loud. That's a real struggle. I really hurt Mary when I rejected her. And I didn't have to think twice to do it because I'm a dirty, rotten arrogant Yankee outside of Jesus. And I got news for you. You can give me five steps to Yankees not talking too loud and yelling at their wives till you're blue in the face, and I'll never, never overcome that snap. But you know what? Jesus lives inside of me too. And when I'm acting like a you-know-what, there's a new person inside of me that makes me love Mary and makes me want to be close to her. And Mary and I are just like you. We're fighting that old nature, new nature thing. Anybody identify with what I'm telling you? And what I want you to know it's Paul is saying, you don't serve in the oldness of the letter. You let Jesus love on you. And you let him pour resurrection life in you. And it enables you to be honest with your spouse and honest with your kids and honest with one another. And this amazing, powerful resurrection love begins to permeate. By the way, my mom is in heaven, but I got a new mom, Joan Steiner. And she did marry my dad. I conducted the ceremony. That was a trick. And Joan breathed new life into an old war horse. My dad lived 10 more years because he married Joan in the sovereign plan of God. That second marriage wasn't a bad deal. But I want you to enter into a second marriage that not even pneumonia. My dad got pneumonia. He really wanted to live with Joan another 10 years, but pneumonia got him and he died. And I want you to have a second marriage with Jesus that's going to bring not life into an old war horse, but it's going to breathe eternal life into someone that will be eternally young
because of the resurrection power of Jesus. Which marriage are you going to live under? An old marriage of law or a new marriage of grace? For more information on materials available through Truth Encounter, please write to us at Truth Encounter, Box 580, Midlothian, Texas, 76065, or you can contact us on the web at www.truthencounter.com. Our telephone number is 1-888-668-7884.